0: I'm here this morning to discuss a little bit Calvin's theology, uh, Calvin's theology of union with Christ, and to try to frame it in terms of its historical perspective. We have limitations in terms of time, but it's not that hard to frame Calvin's theology from a historical standpoint. If you think about Calvin's theology, his institutes, his pamphlets, his tracts, and his commentaries... Calvin wrote, obviously, at an extremely um, uh, combative time in church history, a real polemical moment in the history of the church, at the time point of the Protestant Reformation, where the Roman Catholic Church was uh, anathematizing the theology of the Reformation. And at that point in time, John Calvin faced what was uh, very hard for us to imagine the church of Rome, looking at his theology and the theology of the likes of Luther and others, and saying that if a person believes this theology, that person is to be eternally condemned. That's extremely strong language coming from the church, which claims to have all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Calvin's theology is framed in the context of a polemical disputation with Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, when Rome was looking at Calvin's theology and the theology of the Reformation more broadly, uh, they charged the Reformation with a basic error, a fundamental error that is uh, always to be avoided. It is the error of antinomianism. Uh Uh-oh, misspelled. Nomianism. It's hard enough to spell without crutches. When you get crutches and you can't move, it's terrible. Anti-A-N-T-I, gnomianism, namas, law, anti-law. Here's the way the argument went from Rome against the likes of Calvin. Calvin taught that a person is justified by receiving the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith alone. At the time point that a person receives Christ by faith, according to Calvin, that person is placed beyond probation and in possession of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Sins are remitted forever, and the righteousness of Jesus in his life and death is reckoned to the account of that individual. Now, according to the Reformation, what that means is that you are just as righteous in the sight of God as Jesus Christ himself. God looks at you clothed in the righteousness of another, one who is perfect in his life, perfect in his death, perfect in his resurrection, and he has not only been raised from the dead, but he's ascended into heaven and now intercedes for you in heaven right now. And nothing in all of creation is able to separate you from God's love in Christ. It is an irreversible and... Um, perfect righteousness that you possess in Christ. That's the Reformation doctrine of justification, in a nutshell. Now, Rome charged Calvin with antinomianism, anti-lawism, and here's the way the argument would go. If you are truly clothed with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and there is now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus, why would you pursue good works and strive after holiness? It seems to be that if you are already clothed with the righteousness of Christ beyond probation, that you need not pursue any good works or holiness because it can't get any better for you than it already is. And so Rome would look at this doctrine and say, this is from the devil. This is... Evil. This misleads the church into a false security and proponents of the doctrine of justification following Calvin and following Luther are actually leading the church into an antinomian direction. Does that make sense? Now I know you're Protestants and you're saying, wait a second, that's not true. Well, it's not true. That's a bad argument that Rome made. But that's what they were saying. And and you can see probably how that would have some appeal among people who aren't well studied. They would say, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty bad. And in fact, um, some of the apologists in the Roman Catholic tradition would have said, hey, if the more you sin, the more God gets glory for justifying you through the righteousness of Christ. Keep sinning. Give him glory. You see how the polemic would work? Now, that was a, a very... Um, a very powerful argument that many felt was being leveled against the Reformation by Rome. But the Reformation was not without its own response to Rome. And I want to try to outline what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching about justification. Roman Catholicism, this is Rome right here. I'll just use the RC. Um, Roman Catholic objection is the Protestants are antinomian. The Protestant objection is that Rome is into legalism. Rome is into legalism. And let me explain why. The Roman Catholic Church affirmed in its theology of justification that there is basically a kind of two-phase approach to how a person is made right with God. A two-phased approach. According to Rome, this this is Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism on justification, there's a kind of two-stage approach to how a person is justified. First, at a person's baptism, grace is infused, and at the time point of baptism, the righteousness of Christ himself is actually infused inside of you, if you could think of it that way. You become righteous as one who now has inherently the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not reckoned to your account, but it's infused inside of you so that you existentially in yourself now become intrinsically righteous. And as a righteous person who has faith that is formed by love, you begin to do good works. And those good works merit the favor of God progressively. As you move from your baptism all the way through your life to your second justification at the end of the age. Baptism is your first justification by an infused righteousness. You do good works, and they progressively merit your second justification. Now, here's the problem. This formulation implies that justification is a lifelong process. That's the key word. A lifelong process of meriting justification before God. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And in Roman Catholic theology then, this lifelong process by which you merit your justification, the, the, the Protestants looked at that, and said, that is legalism. That is earning your own justification before God. Granted that there is a baptism by which righteousness is infused, nonetheless, after that, this just gets you in the door. And you need to perform good works that merit a second justification all the way down at the end of the uh, road at the end of the age. Justification, then, is a process of moving from baptism until a final acquittal at the end of the age. Question? You bet. That's what they believe. Well, on one level, uh, Roman, do you hear the question, how do they justify that by Scripture? On one level, they don't care. On one level. Because tradition has exactly as much authority as Scripture has. If the church happens to teach it, because the church possesses the same authority, the same kind of ongoing authority as the apostles themselves, and because revelation on their scheme is not closed, revelation is not ceased, whatever the church teaches bears the same authority as what Scripture would teach. Um, Secondly, however, if they were going to try to uh, find texts that would seem to suggest some kind of process of justification they would point out that according to um, um, the book of Genesis, for instance, Abraham is, rec- is, is declared righteous in Genesis fifteen six, and Paul appeals to that in Romans 4. But then James seems to say that Abraham's justification appeared more clearly in Genesis 22, when he offered his son and he showed his faith by what he did. And so they would say, is it Genesis 15 or is it Genesis 22? Well, if justification is a lifelong process by which you earn the favor of God, it can be both. Something like that. They would, they would try something like that. And the point then is that what they say about the doctrine of justification is what Protestants say about sanctification, except we don't believe that merit functions at all. Question? Um, well, James says that faith without works is dead in 2.14 and 2.26. And um, he does have a, and, and Paul, you could say, does also say in Galatians 5.6 that faith works by love. Yeah. So really Paul and James are on the same page. And look, I don't agree with the, the argument I just gave you from Rome, um, but that's, that's, that's one of the ways they would argue. Yes? That's part of it. That's part of it. Where where the works get off the ground is in terms of an infusion of Christ's righteousness. See, they don't believe this is a pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but they believe there's an infusion of righteousness um, that is from Christ himself that now constitutes you as inherently righteous before God. And what you've got to do is you've got to show yourself to be righteous every day, and here's the key. Robert Bellarmine, I would write it on the board if I were a bit more nimble, B-E-L-L-A-R-M-I-N-E, Bellarmine, he argued that the chief sin of the Reformation, the number one sin of the Reformation, he was like their John Calvin. Chief sin of the Reformation was what? It's doctrine of assurance. <laughs> Do you see Why? The chief sin of the Reformation is the doctrine of assurance. Why? As you're working out your salvation from point A to point B, you never know if your works are sufficient to earn the favor of God. Martin Luther heard that and said, would you repeat that? You're telling me that I have to kn- I, I cannot know until judgment day Whether or not God has accepted me and the good works that I do right now are geared toward earning his favor, I'm terrified. You see, that's terrifying. That is a form of bondage to be placed in a system where good works merit your final justification and you have no idea until the last day whether or not you are in fact justified in God's sight. That's one of the reasons why we had a reformation. Now, Calvin is, is looking at this situation. And by the way, I, I, I have material here from the uh, Council of Trent that I'm not going to read you for time's sake. Just if you want it, I can, I can give it to you later. And it makes this basic argument that I have kind of diagrammed up on the board. But instructive, I will read this from the Council of Trent, Canons um, 11 and 12. Just listen to this. This is how strong they were about our theology of justification. I'll just read one. If anyone says, this is uh, Canon 13, that justifying faith is nothing else but the confidence in the divine mercy which remits sin for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let me put it in more simple language. If anyone believes that justification is based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness alone, or that you stand before God because of Christ's righteousness alone, here's the conclusion. Let him be anathema, eternally condemned. That's how strong the rhetoric was. And there's a dilemma then that Calvin faced when he was trying to answer Rome. How could he argue, if you think back now, how could he argue that justification is the imputation of Christ's righteousness and still speak meaningfully about holiness and the believer's good works. Do You see how that's a real issue that he faced? The, Rome is saying, okay, if you're justified by grace through faith in Christ, you have no motive for good works. Here's our motive. If you don't do them, you're not going to be justified. And if you do them, you still don't know whether or not you're going to be justified. So guess what? Get busy now. Work, 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 work. Calvin, on the other hand, is saying, this is fundamentally mistaken. There is one act of justification. It occurs in two stages, but it has one ground. It's Jesus Christ. It's received by faith alone. And God remits your sin and reckons righteous solely by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Now, how is Calvin going to respond to this charge of Roman Catholicism that he teaches anti-nomianism, anti-lawism? How's he going to do it? Well, the answer is found in terms of Calvin's theology, three, three little words, union with Christ. Union with Christ. So Calvin is going to respond in terms of a theology of union with Christ and all that that involves. Let me read the opening lines of book three. By the way, I've heard that I'm giving you a little bit of a preview of what's coming in January, February, and March here. There's going to be a study of book three. I may be tentatively scheduled to do justification, union, and sanctification. So this, this is a preview. Almost immediately into chapter one, book three of the Institutes, where, where Calvin talks about redemption applied to believers, he makes a statement that has become what I consider to be a classic statement. He says this, First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. What he's saying then is until you come into contact by faith with the crucified and living Christ, all that he has done, all that he has suffered is of no avail for you. And he says, following that immediately, we obtain this in Christ by faith, by which we come to enjoy Christ and all his benefits. Calvin's starting point, and this cannot be overstated, is union with the living Christ, the crucified and living Christ of Scripture. What Calvin means by this is very simple. No union with Christ, no benefits of redemption. Unless you first possess Christ, you are not justified, you are not adopted, You are not sanctified. You have no blessing whatsoever until you are united to Christ, joined to Christ, trusting in Christ by a Spirit-wrought faith, as the Spirit works faith in you and unites you to Christ. So, union with Christ by faith is going to be the starting point in Calvin's answer to Rome. Now, here's what's very interesting here. This structure this structure is going to become a basic explanatory paradigm for Calvin. It's going to be the most basic structure when it comes to the application of redemption. John Calvin were here and you asked him, "How do you receive benefits in Christ?" He would say by first being united to Christ by faith. And he, what he does then is he brings forth from the scripture the centrality of the person and work of Christ. Benefits of the gospel are bound up with the person of Jesus Christ. So his starting point for for Calvin here is union with Christ, book three. Now, no benefits. uh, Let me try it this way. This is one memorable way to try to put it. There are no benefits of redemption apart from union with the benefactor of redemption, Jesus Christ. Now, the question, as we try to get a little bit more specific, is how does Calvin understand the structure of union with Christ? How does he understand the structure of union with Christ? What does union with Christ look like in terms of its basic structure? In that context, Calvin, in Book 3, in 3.11.1, says this. By partaking of him, Christ, we receive a double grace, a double grace, namely that of being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness. We may have in heaven, instead of a judge, a gracious father. And secondly, that sanctified by his spirit we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. Now, here's what he does. You're united to Christ by faith, and then Calvin argues that you receive a double grace, what Calvin calls the duplex gratia de, the twofold grace of God. First, he argues that In your union with Christ, you are reconciled. Oh, guys, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, Okay. Yeah, I've got to realize that. I couldn't see it on the front row, could I? (laughs) Much less in the back. Okay. Is that better? Reconciled? Exactly, exactly. It's my print. All caps. And secondly, you are sanctified. Love how I interchange uh, capital and lowercase letters. Um, Reconciled and sanctified. Now, these sorts of blessings, notice, affect two different things. On the one hand, to be reconciled with God changes what, according to Calvin? Instead of a judge in heaven, you have a what? You have a father. So that changes your, your judicial status. Oh, I went small again. Sorry. I'm in a bad habit here. Your judicial status. That's what this, this little scribble down here means. Judicial status. It changes your objective relationship to God. Put it this way. When you enter into the courtroom of heaven, the judge has become your father and he loves you now and no longer views you as guilty and alienated in his sight. You are reconciled. Calvin uses reconciliation language almost synonymously with justification language. You are just. You are righteous in God's sight. And so that is not only something that changes your judicial status, but it's what I call an objective, here we go larger, declaration. It's an objective declaration. It changes your status before God. Secondly... Calvin argues that you are sanctified through virtue of union with Christ by which you may cultivate blamelessness of life or by which you may seek holiness in the Lord. And that involves a change not that is external, your your status related to God, but that's an internal change, a change by which you are freed from sin. And so instead of being an objective declaration... This is a subjective transformation, a change on the inside of who you are. And so, on this uh, construction, here's what I want you to notice. Calvin says when you are united to Christ, you receive a twofold grace of God. On the one hand, there is an objective declaration. A reckoning that you are no longer guilty, you are no longer related to God as judge, God is your judge, but you are his child. You are righteous in his sight. Your status has changed. At the same time, God has not only made an objective declaration, but he has worked a subjective transformation in you so that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under the dominion of sin. You've been freed from guilt on the one hand here. You've been freed from guilt here. You've been freed from corruption there in sanctification. Both freedom from guilt and corruption are given to you by virtue of your union with Christ. And so Calvin makes this distinction between the, this twofold grace and they are distinct from one another. This twofold grace, this duplex gratia. Does that make sense in terms of the way he's, he's structuring it? Now here, you're going to, start to, you're going to start to discern Calvin's polemic against Rome here. Here's the question. These two things cannot be confused. The objective declaration, if, if, I, if I wrote another... Um, line up here right under here that would be imputed righteousness that which is reckoned to you the subjective transformation would be inwrought grace that which is put inside of you this changes your status this changes if i had another line here your condition who you are inside now here's the question how do these two things relate to one another in jesus christ in your union with him how do they relate according to calvin These things, I'm almost out of space, I'll I'll be as large as I can be right here. These two things are related to one another, first and foremost, distinctly and inseparably. Distinctly and inseparably. That's how these two things are related to one another, distinctly and inseparably. Let me read you Calvin. Calvin says this. It is indeed true that we are justified in Christ through the mercy of God alone. But it is equally true and certain that all who are justified are called by the Lord that they may live worthy of their vocation. So he's saying, not only are you justified in Christ, but you are also renewed that you might live worthy of your vocation. He goes on to say, let then the faithful learn to embrace him, Christ, Not only for justification, but for sanctification as he has been given to us for both of these purposes. Lest they render him asunder by their mutilated faith. In other words, Calvin is saying, if you first receive Christ, you can't tear him into pieces and take a part of him for justification at one point in time. And then later take another part of him for sanctification. He says this, As Christ cannot be torn into parts, so these two which we perceive in him together and conjointly are inseparable, namely righteousness and sanctification. Now, the benefits of justification then are distinct from one another. Justification and sanctification but they're given inseparably together through virtue of union with Christ because you receive Christ, not part of Christ, not a piece of Christ, but the whole Christ. And he is given to you for two purposes, to change your status and to change your condition. And then Calvin then goes on to say in uh, 3.16.1 this, and he's commenting on a a text in... um, in on 1 Corinthians 130 text we'll look at next week he says this Paul said that Christ is made to us righteousness by which he means that we are on his account acceptable to God inasmuch as he expiated our sins by his death and his obedience is imputed for righteousness and he goes on to say but Paul also calls Christ our sanctification by which he means that we who are otherwise unholy by nature are by his spirit renewed unto holiness that we may serve him. From this, now here's the key sentence, listen to this. From this we may infer that we cannot be justified freely through faith alone without at the same time being holy. Hear that? You cannot receive Christ by faith for justification without at the same time receiving him for sanctification because he cannot be divided into pieces. Since, therefore, it is solely by expending himself that the Lord gives us these benefits to enjoy, he bestows both of them at the same time the one never, without the other. Now, in Calvin's view, then, I would add one more word to this underneath, that, that the change in your uh, status and the change in your condition is simultaneous. That's as large as I can go. Simultaneous. Distinct, inseparable, and simultaneous. You want to receive righteousness and holiness you must first receive whom? Christ. Then in Christ, you are distinctly, inseparably, and simultaneously justified and sanctified. Sin is remitted and righteousness is reckoned in your justification. Your nature is renewed in sanctification. And these are given to you at the same time. Question? Yes, but what Calvin is saying, you, when you receive Christ, even though your righteousness is full in terms of a reckoning, and even though your sanctification grows and you cultivate a blamelessness of life, you have a principial and irreversible breach with guilt and corruption just like that in union with Christ. Right, I just said no. So that's that's not the issue. You're not as holy at the end as you are uh, at the beginning as you are at the end, because sanctification is a process, justification's not. But the point is this: just as you, in your justification, are beyond probation, never to return to the guilt of sin, so likewise in your sanctification, you have been freed from its power as a slave or a master. As Paul says in Romans 6.1, you have risen to walk in newness of life by virtue of your union with Christ and sin will no longer be your what? Master, because you are no longer under law but under grace. That's what Calvin's trying to get at. That at the time point you receive Christ by faith, the problem of guilt and the problem with corruption are addressed simultaneously in Christ. Now, granted, later you do recognize there is um, a, um, a difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is once for all, you are as righteous now as you will be in heaven. Sanctification is progressive. But never let that 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 basic and and standard insight obscure the fact that both of these are given simultaneously in Christ. The one never without the other. And the reason why we need to remember that is, um, is, uh, I think, fairly important. Calvin responds to Rome by saying what? You're telling me, Rome, Bellarmine, and the rest, that if I have a robust doctrine of justification... That if I am reckoned as righteous as Christ himself through receiving his foreign righteousness, you're telling me that I cannot find a motive for pursuing holiness and good works? And Rome says yes, and Calvin says wrong. That is fundamentally mistaken. Here's why. That would be true only if we taught that believers receive a partial Christ. A Christ only for justification and not for sanctification. He says, we receive the whole Christ in union with him. No sooner am I freed from the guilt of my sin in virtue of union than I am freed from the corruption of my sin by virtue of that same union. I have received the whole Christ and now my motive, listen to this, my motive for holy living is not fear but love. Not fear that I will not be accepted as righteous because in Christ I am accepted as righteous once for all. But my motive is love for the one who has freed me not only from my condemnation and guilt but from my enslavement to sin's power. Granted, I still sin, but sin is no longer my master. Christ is my master. Christ is my Lord. I have been raised with Christ in such a way that just as Christ was raised to walk in newness of life and is dead to sin but alive to God, Romans 6.10, so likewise I in him am dead to sin but alive to God, dead to its fundamental power, as a, as, a, as a master and alive to God. Now, in addition to that, in addition to that, Calvin, uh, in, in other words, Calvin answers Rome on that question of antinomianism by saying, You have not understood union with Christ. And that's why union with Christ, in my opinion, is the most important doctrine of salvation applied to grasp. You've got to grasp its basic significance, according to Calvin. And that two-fold structure is absolutely foundational. And by the way, I, I do want to commend Dr. Garner's uh, dissertation where he takes a category of, um, of adoption and demonstrates how adoption has a very close and similar function to union with Christ. So Dr. Garner would say there's still more light to be shed on this topic. And there is. But, um, but so, so Calvin's answer to Rome is there is no benefit given apart from union with Christ but if you're united to him you get both of these benefits now here's another interesting point of the way Calvin answered Rome Calvin answered Rome by saying this in, in, in the organization of his institutes Rome you say that we if we believe in justification by faith alone that we can't speak about holiness and sanctification and renewal in a meaningful way he said okay, okay let's put that to the test and so the way he organized the institutes and I'm sure you're going to hear about this later on in, in, in the course to come chapter one of Book three of the Institutes begins with the discussion of the centrality of union with Christ. Chapter two deals with the nature, pardon me, with the nature of saving faith by which you're united to Christ. And then here's the question: Do you think the next section, chapters three through 10, do you think the next section deals with justification? Or sanctification first? Sanctification. Why would he do that? Does he think sanctification is more important than justification? No. He's showing, yeah, they're, the order's indifferent because they're given distinctly and separably and simultaneously in union with Christ. But if Rome is over there saying, hey, you can't talk meaningfully about sanctification because you believe in justification by faith alone, Calvin would say, guess what? I'm going to start with sanctification after union in order to show the fundamental importance of union with Christ properly understood. Calvin is a theologian first and foremost when it comes to redemption of union with Christ. So when we back up and kind of survey the land here, I want you to notice something. This is not only a wonderful biblical construction, union with Christ, And we'll look at that some next week. We'll look at some key texts Calvin used to talk about this. But this is also an incredible polemical device. It's, It's a device that is aimed to counter the error of the Roman Catholic Church, this construction. And I think it's to be commended both as being very richly biblical and very helpful in pointing out errors that you find within the Roman Catholic Church, whether it's antinomianism or legalism. Now, just quickly, how would Calvin answer, or what, what would the um, formulation here about um, legalism involve? This is legalism because a person earns the second justification by meritorious good works. Calvin, by emphasizing the fact that these two benefits are distinct, that's the key word. And many critics of Calvin and his theology miss this. Because he says these two benefits are distinct, he never, ever confuses justification and sanctification. Never does so. They remain distinct. That is, the, the qualities of a transformed life never ground justification. And the imputation of Jesus' righteousness never becomes The category involved in sanctification. He never confuses them. He keeps them distinct, as distinct as the two natures in Jesus are, divine and human. They're never commingled, they're never intermixed, they're never confused. Likewise, justification and sanctification are never commingled, they're never mixed, they're never confused with one another. And that is extremely important because, insofar as those two benefits are distinct from one another, Calvin avoids this kind of fusion of justification and sanctification. And from a pastoral standpoint, let me, let me just talk to you quickly about what the cash value of this is for you as a believer. And, and please hear this, because this is, this is such good news for you. If you operated under a Roman Catholic system right now, you would be told... That your good works are with a view toward becoming righteous in the sight of God. And I promise you that if you were sincere and examined yourself closely, you would begin to ask this question How much is enough? How much do I have to do in order to merit God's favor? You would want to know, wouldn't you? Uh, how many good works do I need? Just give me the quantity. And how good do they have to be on a scale of 1 to 10? 6, 7, 8, 9, 10? What if I get the quality right, but I miss the quantity? What if I nail the quantity and I miss the quality? What if I, what if I needed 100,000 good works and I did 100,000 and 1, but the quality needed to be 7.8 and I gave 7.4? do 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 you realize what kind of bondage you would be in? One of the beauties, the glories of the Reformation is that your good works in union with Christ proceed on you having heard, as it were, in Scripture, this verdict. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Jesus has paid it all. And all that he has done has been reckoned to you through faith. And you now, in union with him, having received his righteousness and this new status, can cultivate holiness and blamelessness of life toward a loving father and not an angry judge. This is not an academic issue, first and foremost. This is about the well-being of of God's people. This system that Calvin proposed in place of the Roman Catholic system, I think is as viable and valuable today as it was in the time that Calvin wrote. And so when I share this with you, it's not simply for your education, but it's for your edification. Five minutes for questions. Dave, does that look right? Do we have time? Questions. I'll do a little stretching while you think. Yes, Dave. Time's up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He always asks such good questions, I get nervous. Go ahead. Well, let me tell you this. Um, Dave, uh, Dr. Garner here, just, I, I had planned to discuss this today, and um, that's okay. Let's do it real quickly. The, the, what Dr. Garner's asking about is the... Um, a view within Protestantism that developed with Melanchthon out of the Lutheran tradition. And according to that view, I'll give it to you in a nutshell. The scheme would look like this. Um, and if you want some texts, I can give them to you. Um, I might give them to you next week. But I'll just put it on the board and then I'll map it out in detail next week. How's that? There is another view within Protestantism called the Lutheran view. And, oh, the Lutheran view, and, and, the, and the Lutheran view um, would begin, now I want you to just, I'll just, I'll just tease, tease this out a little bit, and then we'll do more next week, okay? And you're going to be astounded, I think, because you tend to think, Calvin and Luther, they've got to agree on almost everything, or at least the Lutheran tradition. Well, I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, according to this view, the, the, the first and most basic benefit of the gospel, according to the Lutheran view, take a guess. Number one, for what is it for Calvin? What's the fundamental structure for redemption applied? Union with Christ. What do you think it is for the Lutheran? Justification by faith. And they're fine on doctrine of justification by faith. They're, they're against Rome. They believe righteousness is imputed, received by faith in Christ, and they're solid. But here's what they do. They argue two things. They argue that justification effects and produces two things. Justification effects or causes union with Christ. It effects it. And it produces sanctification. Now let me ask you this. Just as we start, and then goes on to say later... That justification is the entire gospel. Now, if I've done a decent job, at least, of helping you see what Calvin taught, you recognize this, that structurally, those two things cannot be easily reconciled. You see what I'm saying? Let let me ask you this, just quickly here. Dr. Garner, I'll do this more systematically next week. He he knows my pedagogy. He knew knew we were going to be going here. Look at the different structure. Where is justification or reconciliation, judicial status, where is that included under Calvin's chart? It's a benefit of union, right? The Lutheran says you're first justified by faith in Christ and then union with Christ is effected by by justification itself and that justification produces sanctification. Let me ask you this. Here's Here's the exam question for the week. It's a real easy one. What would Calvin say about the idea that you can be justified prior to and apart from union with Christ? That's the word, impossible. As long as you remain outside of Christ and separated from him, all that he has accomplished, including justification, remains useless and of no value. It's just not possible to be blessed apart from union with Christ. And the Lutheran tradition here, and I'll try to explain to you a little bit why next week. The historical will go a little over. But um, the, the, the Lutheran view sees justification as affecting um, union with Christ, what they call the mystical union, and producing sanctification, and I'll comment on that a little bit because that's an irony. And, um, and therefore, the structure of the Reformed and Lutheran views is, is really... Not, it's not possible to uh, harmonize the two. Do you see how that is just from what I've drawn on the board? I haven't given you the quotes and the, the men who say this, but I'll, I'll give that to you next week. It's backwards. That's exactly right. I think, I think the same thing. And um, it's probably about eight or nine years ago. You know, At Westminster, we certainly better know our Calvin. But we also want to read as broadly as we can. Probably about a decade ago, 10, 11 years ago, I decided to really read carefully in the Lutheran tradition. And when this came up, I have to admit, I was surprised to see that. Um, We don't want to diminish the importance of justification, but it certainly, in the Reformed tradition, has always been um, preceded by something more basic, namely union. And in the Lutheran tradition, justification becomes the central blessing, chief blessing, the entire gospel. If you were to ask me... um, Um, Lane, how would you describe the entire gospel applied? I would say this, union and communion with Christ in grace now and in glory. Union and communion with Christ in grace and glory. Do I get justification that way? You bet. Do I prioritize justification over union? Um, As Paul would say, may it never be. Um, But we'll look at the biblical text next week. Um, I I believe we're probably uh, about time. May I close us in prayer? Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the contribution of John Calvin and his theology. Thank you that he leads us to the one who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption, namely Jesus Christ. Cause us to abide in him as the vine, cause us to look to him as the one in whom we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and help us to look to him, the crucified and resurrected one, the one who was dead but now is alive, and help us to know that in him we have all that we need in life and in death and in the life to come. We pray that you would bless us as we prepare for worship even now. Cause your word to be preached with authority and clarity and accompanied by your spirit and build us up as we are sanctified progressively in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.